are back with another episode of Civil Oak Creek Conversations. My name is Wyatt Marchant, and I'm here with Mr. Paul Wilson. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. I think this exchange happens every single time. Yeah? No, it does. I don't know how else to do it. Neither do I. <laughs> and I, if I start thinking about it, like I said last time, I'll mess it up. You get all messed up, huh? Get yep. Up in your head. Yep. Just got to go with it. So you and I just had lunch together at brand new restaurant in our quaint little town of Bernie, Texas. Yes. What'd you think? It was good. Um, it's called Smashburger. And well, the restaurant is called Hamby's. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. It's called Hamby's, but the burgers are called Smashburger. And a complaint that I had <laughs> afterwards was that the those that the meat, like the patties were too thin. Oh, yeah. And then you pointed out, well, they are called Smashburgers. And <laughs> so anyways, if you go, maybe get the double. So that way you can taste the meat better. Yeah, I had the double and um, no complaints. But I found uh, that I might have chosen a single just to kind of keep it all together mm. as you're working your way through it. Kind of fell apart? Yeah, a little bit. Eat thicker buns. Maybe. I'd do the job. But yeah, it was good. Like, I'm not really a burger connoisseur like yourself. <laughs> yes. Burger restaurants are my thing. I, Like I was telling you at lunch, um, some people, they, they like their coffee shops. Um, me, I'm, I like my burger joints. I, I kind of go searching for them and try to find one that's uh, certainly that the food's good. They serve milkshakes. That's an important qualifier. And then there's something about atmosphere that's either relaxed and comfortable and kind of authentic, not, not rushed or anything like that. That's kind of my favorite kind of burger joint. Something with a little nostalgia to it. That's yeah, that that's like just great diners, like seventies, yeah. eighties vibe. Yeah, a big fan of diners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, I'm going on a sabbatical later this summer, and um, I'm charting out my my course that I'm going to travel. And one of the things that I've stated as uh, one of the things I want to accomplish on my sabbatical is visit lots and lots of like hole diners, hole in the wall diners, like yeah. in the middle of nowhere, and so I'm kind of looking forward to that. Yeah, no, that, that'll that be fun. Finding those little places. We found this one place on the way up to Colorado for, for skiing, and it wasn't necessarily a diner, but it's called the Wrong Way Cafe, and it's oh, that's a great right, name. Ab- right above Amarillo. Uh-huh. And uh, that place is amazing. Like, they have chicken fried steaks oh. double the size of your head, <laughs> and it's just so good. And they have this train that, like, goes all the way across like, the entire restaurant on the top. Right. Um, it's just a really, like... Uh, very unique little place. But you mentioned something that uh, I'm going to go on a diatribe. I already told you it. But Uh-oh. you mentioned people always like to talk about their coffee shops. <laughs> if, you're Christian, <laughs> if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian. All right, don't get us in trouble before we even get started. I've got to say it. This is a public <laughs> announcement. Stop talking about coffee. <laughs> no one cares. It's not interesting. It's not a part of your... Pr- Listen, go to CivilOakCreek.com slash about us, go to leadership, and, you, and read how 50% of our staff, good friends of mine, love them all, but they all have coffee as something that's like an integral piece of like who they are. And it's like, okay, why does anybody like note that they really like Capri Sun or something like that? Capri it's like, yeah, I'm a big Kool-Aid guy. It's like, okay, hang on. Joe Teep, this doesn't go to you. Don't get offended because he's like, he goes hard. And so there's some respect there. He's got a carafe that's worth more than 
<laughs> your car. Yeah. <laughs> Carafe is a pitcher, by the way, for those of you who don't know or oh, care. Wow. You're yeah. just making all kinds of friends here at the start of this podcast. That is not my goal. Um, yeah, you know, it's a big uh, joke around our, our staff <laughs> is that they all love coffee, most all of them. And I do not like coffee at all. Um, I don't like the smell of coffee. It smells skunky to me. Mm. And so to walk into a room with multiple coffee drinkers or somebody's brewing coffee in their office, I find it, um, what would be the right word? Disgusting, but that sounds a little extreme. I don't enjoy it. So um, we we give the coffee drinkers around our place a fair share of grief, and they just serve it right back. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm coffee drinkers and wine drinkers. They're they're like little tribes. They're they're very very uh passionate about their drink of choice and we're I'm lucky just a that, little more simple than that, I guess. For people in ministry, they're lucky that they do ministry here because like anybody from a place that doesn't have a Starbucks in every corner would find us so pretentious. <laughs> what kind of coffee do you drink? Oh, a mocha chocolate with extra whatever. Gosh. And then you, a man's ordering that? Okay, hang on. Okay, I'm done. Wow. That was a strong start to this podcast. So. So, what's what are we talking about today? Yeah, so I just thought that I'd, uh, I thought that I would ask you some questions as you're okay. a, a pastor of many years. Um, like 35 yeah. years. Uh, you know, for years I'd say, well, I've been a pastor for like 30 years. And I just realized the other, not too long ago, no, now we're up into the 35-year range. Mm-hmm. If I take in all of the years that I've been somehow connected to ministry, either part-time or full-time, it's, it's just sounds like a long time now. Heck, I just hit five. Well, it'll be six come August for me, and that sounds weird. Yeah, well, you got 30 years ahead of you. Yeah, I do. Granted, it kind of fits, given that everybody always says that I'm like a 45-year-old and a this is true. 25-year-old body. <laughs> if you didn't pick up on that from me just going off just then, <laughs> more like an 85-year-old who sits on yeah. a porch and just complains. Um, but, yeah, so anyways, I thought I would ask you some questions. Just uh, I know that you're someone who um, pontificates. That's a word oh, you like. That's a good word. And you ob- are, are an observer, such as myself. And so I thought you would, I would ask you some questions about what you're kind of seeing, where you're kind of seeing the um, uh, the tides, uh, care, uh, where they're kind of going, where the winds are blowing. That's what I'm thinking of. In regards to the church? or Yes, so in regards to the church and then also just kind of like Christian culture. Christian culture. Um, I'm going to take an exception. I'm not sure I'm a pontificator. I'm a contemplative. What's the difference? A pontificator is somebody who speaks uh, very authoritatively about <laughs> what they believe. I'm not, That'd be me. I'm not saying that. Yeah, that would be you. <laughs> I'm, I'm more a, contempt, a contemplative where I, I'm a thinker. I maul things over. I stew on them for long periods of time and then speak from that. But a pontificator is a little bit more of an assertive um, Sometimes a loud mouth. You're the person, you're the kind of person that people like me go to, if they're wise, to make sure that we're at least pontificating about the right thing. <laughs> yes, this would be true. That's that's the nature of wisdom is to 
um, visit with those who may have more experience or insight to validate if in fact you're headed in the right direction so you're being a wise young man listen i am bridled people people <laughs> it might surprise you but i am i am i'm restrained um but anyways so i thought that i would ask you first <clears throat> what are a few things that you notice in the church and kind of christian culture um i don't know if those are necessarily two different things but what are no, no. what are two different what are two or maybe three things a handful of stuff things that you kind of see that concerns you, um, some some trends that are happening, or uh, <clears throat> just any anything that, you, or maybe even some like wrong teaching or beliefs, whatever it would be. What are some things that you see in the church that yeah. that are concerning to you? Yeah, there's when when you pose those questions to me. Um, sometimes I like to. Like I said, I like to stew on things for a little while and think them through. And then there's a little bit about the nature of this podcast as a conversation that I, I really like to just sort of pay attention to what are the first things that come to my mind. And uh, when you posed the question um, last night, um, two things kind of popped in my head pretty quickly as things that I, I tend to think about with a certain amount of concern. Um, so we'll start with two, and then if we get on to a third one, that'll be fine. But um, the first one that comes to mind is, um, and this isn't, this isn't new to the church or to Christian culture. I just see it as becoming more and more predominant or more and more of, a, of an urgency. And it's the classic uh, frog in a kettle uh, situation, mm. and most of us have heard of it. So if you if you boil a pot of water and you place a frog in the boiling water, he will immediately jump out. But evidently, if you put a frog in a kettle of water and then slowly start turning up the heat, um, he'll actually boil to death. And I, I think I'm seeing that in a way that I've never really seen it before or appreciating it. Um, I think that the church, and I'm going to talk about like the church in America because I'm not experienced or seasoned in churches of other nations. I have, you know, I have some data, but I don't have experience in it. Um, I think the church is largely underestimating the danger it is in. Mm when it comes to people of faith and particularly the Christian community um, on a path to becoming uh, persecuted in the United States of America. And while I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow, I think there's a lot of things happening that indicate we're on a path toward it. We're headed over the slippery slope. And once we're over the slope, then it'll accelerate very, very quickly. And I think that the church or Christians are largely either ignorant to it or um, they're, they, they underestimate where we are in that journey. I, I think I've shared with you before on, on the podcast this uh, illustration. It makes sense to me. It um, helps me a lot. Um, 
if you were to stand, if you were here in San Antonio and you stood in the center of I-10, which is the primary interstate that runs through the city of San Antonio, uh, east to west, if you stood in the center of I-10 and you looked west, you would be unable to see El Paso because it's like six hours away. And there's a lot of distance between here and El Paso. If you turned and looked east, uh, you couldn't see Houston because it's three hours away. And there's buildings and rises and falls and billboards and everything between. So you can't see Houston. You can't see El Paso. But here's what I know. If you got in a car and you drove six hours west, you will come to El Paso. Yeah. And if you got in a car and you drove three hours east, you will come to Houston because that's where the road takes you. And so I'm looking at culture, uh, you know, the heart of a pastor, I'm looking at culture and saying, if we stay on the road that we are currently on, we will eventually arrive at a place where Christians are in fact persecuted as a people in the United States of America. And the religious freedoms that we have enjoyed and felt was protected by the Constitution of the United States um, will have changed dramatically. And there's things happening now where I'm, I'm looking at what I consider to be the groundwork for that as Christian ideas become uh, considered more and more antagonistic or perceived as hateful or perceived as um, fascist. Um, and that's a lot of the language that's being aligned toward Christian groups and Christian beliefs uh, because they're so opposed in a, a non-Christian society that doesn't believe or embrace those things. And so we're, we're seeing uh, Christians or conservatives are more likely to be censored, more likely to be canceled, more likely to find some kind of shenanigans surrounding uh, their platforms that they might have, whether that's in media or social media. And so we're just seeing that... Um, that's happening more and more frequently in the U.S. Um, we're looking at things that are happening on the American uh, Secular University campus where conservative students and Christian students are enduring quite a lot of difficulties in either expressing their perspectives or um, having a voice and even in some instances, there's illustrations of it. It's not like I'm making this up, but there's illustrations of students being penalized in the classroom for their conservative um, positions, whether that's writing a paper or speaking up in class and literally, you know, either receiving a poor grade or, you know, being uh, mocked. And again, we might say, well, that's, a, that's not a big deal. It is a big deal with how predominant it's becoming how frequent it's becoming and i like i said i just see it as groundwork being laid to where conservative or christian beliefs will become more and more mocked more and more maligned more and more dismissed uh, more and more viewed as the problem as being hateful as being and this you know fascist is one of these popular terms more and more racist more and more misogynistic whatever terms you labels that are so popular nowadays for uh, you know quieting people or you know, silencing people 
I just see that happening more and more. So again, I'm in my car driving west, and maybe I'm only an hour out right now, and so it doesn't look like it's that big of a deal. But I, I think at the pace that I'm seeing it happen, um, if I keep driving, I'm going to get there. Yeah. And uh, I just read an interesting article yesterday about a young man who was 16 years old. Uh, this happened in Canada. Um, he was at an event. It was some sort of a celebration of um, trans and gender identity sort of um, protest of some kind. And again, I only have what I've read, so I naturally there's always two sides to a story. But from the article I was reading, and let's just say to any listeners, this was not on Fox News. Um, in the article I was reading, uh, he was just handing out Bibles to the participants in the protest. I saw this, yeah. And he ends up getting arrested. And he wasn't charged with the crime, but he was warned that if this happens again, you will be charged with the crime because what, what the interpretation was that his presence there handing out the Bible and what it stands for, he was being aggressive and antagonistic and hateful to emotional violence, probably yeah, to those who were um, also attending the event, and and we can say, well, that was that happened in Canada. That's not the United States. True, I'll, I'll grant you that. But two things: um, it demonstrates what can happen in a society under certain political and ideological in, ideological influences. So it can happen in a country. So it's not impossible to think that it could happen in the United States, particularly with some of what we're witnessing. And secondly, um, Canada in many ways is just a few years ahead of where the United States wants to be mm -hmm. when it comes to sort of um, the dictate of government on how society is allowed to behave and what the penalties are for it. And so you, know, you get a sense that there's a lot that, uh, secular U.S. is learning from Canada and yearning from Canada. Like, we would like to see that sort of authority, that sort of penalty, that sort of censorship to be allowed here, too. So I, I don't think just because it happened in Canada, you can just immediately say it won't happen in the U.S. Because what we're seeing now that's happening in social media, what's happening in the news, what's happening in politics, um, much more frequently, you wouldn't have imagined that 50 years ago. But we've, we've changed and things are, are moving quite along. So I'm looking at the church, and let's just say Christians, either collectively or individually, and they're either, one, ignorant to it and its severity or its urgency, or they're so intimidated by their culture and their society and the possible penalties of getting involved that they're, they're shrinking back. They're not saying anything. They're not standing up. They're not speaking up. And so, um, in a sense, the gates of hell are prevailing, now, we know the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail, but that isn't, that isn't a, um, a promise made to the United States of America. That's just a collective, redemptive game plan of God that ultimately Christ wins. 
But that doesn't mean that the gates of hell can't prevail in a society, in a culture, in a country. And as um, the force for good that the church was intended to be, the more it shrinks back and um, becomes quiet and intimidated, the more likely that evil is allowed to to advance. Mm. And I, I won't get the quote white right, and I don't remember who exactly, but we, it's a very familiar quote that, you know, all it takes for evil to advance is for good people to basically do nothing or to say nothing. And so that's, you know, as a pastor, that's one of my concerns about what I'm seeing in the Christian community is um, this reluctance to engage, to be involved because of all the labels that get slung about regarding the person who tends to speak up and take the opposing view. And, um, I think I think we have to we have to equip the church, we have to equip equip Christians to be discerning about these things, and know how to engage. Um, not not from a malicious, not from a, an antagonistic or aggressive perspective, but to know how to engage, how to stand up for truth in the face of the lie that's now being accepted as true. Yeah. And I think I've said this before too. Um, but a big reason as to like why I think we, the church has been kind of unsuccessful. I think it's starting to slightly, get, I think we're kind of standing up after we fell down. Right. But we mm-hmm. fell down to begin with because most people didn't think they were going to have to, give a reason or to or ha- have to justify marriage. Why is it good? Yeah. But all of a sudden, those questions were being asked, and if you couldn't give an answer, even if you could, really, um, you were shouted down or called unloving. And then another thing is that I don't think many people realize that a lot of the... Take the people out of it. I'm not going to say the people on the other side. The ideas on the other side that are the motivating pe- factors that I think a lot of people have been gripped by you could even say possessed by, um, and yes, I, I would use that word. Right. That would be my, my word of choice. Um, but they're gripped by these ideas, and these ideas and, and the people and the individuals, which is a small handful, the progenitor of those ideas, they're, they're wholly incompatible with Christianity. And, and their goal is to not, not be compatible with Christianity. It's not any, oh, yeah. let's accept Christians in. It's let's destroy everything that Christianity like stands on. Right. And, um, and, and, and then work from there. Like that's the goal of the ideas, not necessarily the individuals, but the ideas. Oh, that's the end goal. Doubt. And you get points for using the word progenitor. Wow. I'll tell you what. That's pretty good. Impressive. And it just rolled off your tongue. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm given how many words I messed up at lunch. <laughs> We're looking good. Well, what was the word at lunch that you butchered? Uh, simplicity, or I said, yeah. Um, I, I was supposed to say simplistic, but I said simplistic. <laughs> That's it, simplistic. I was just reading the pronunciation <laughs> out of the dictionary. Um, no, you're yeah. you're exactly right. There is a um, progressive ideology that's rampant in our culture, and part of its. Um, Part of its curriculum is not to simply learn how to include Christianity, but to actually uh, stamp it out, to oppose it, to demean and dismiss it in, in any right as having any kind of value. 
Yes. And something that I've, I was kind of thinking through this last week on a walk is that it's really tricky because the way that it does that, the way that it, in, what I think these ideas, they infiltrate the church by appealing to our values. They take our values, but then they turn them into vices. Yeah. They take love and then love becomes this thing that just allows anything, anything, sin, right. unrighteousness. Yes. They take uh, empathy and they use it against you. And, and the thing is too, it's like, even if you, even if you bring them in, you're still like, you're going to bring, I said this last week. It's like, they're, they're no longer just wolves dressing up as sheep. They're wolves dressing up as sheep and playing a, uh, an injured sheep. Like they're weak, uh, yeah, right? They're weak. They're good. injured. Yeah. And so we bring them in, but then they say that we're the ones that injured them. Yeah. And it's like, wait a minute, wait a second here. Yeah, that that was a very powerful picture. I I found myself thinking about that even after the podcast. I, um, I thought that was a brilliant way to describe a lot of the emotional um, manipulation mm. that groups like you're describing use as an argument against Christianity and Christians. Um, yeah. They're definitely the folks that we're referring to that espouse these kinds of ideas. Um, yes, they're taking much of the the values or the truths that Christians, you know, affirm, and they're manipulating and and using them to their advantage. Whether you're talking about love, or you're talking about justice, um, talking about empathy and compassion. Um, yeah, th they're definitely using those in a way that is favorable to the um, agenda that they're seeking to accomplish, but in no way reflect the true nature of those words and those ideas and values as described by God in the scriptures. Um, yeah, I, I um, this morning I was at a presentation at a Christian high school in the area, um, seniors at that high school have to present what's called a senior thesis. Mm. And uh, so I went because there was a young lady that was giving her senior thesis presentation. And it's a really big deal um, at this school. And I went because one, uh, her parents are friends of ours, but also she had, um, she had interviewed with me as a part of her preparation for um, the presentation. And uh, her, her subject, her thesis was built around um, a commitment to biblical ideas about sexuality mm. in contemporary culture or in, in the face of contemporary culture and sexual mores that are so predominant. Uh, she did an excellent job uh, in her presentation, and she was talking about the nature of progressive theology and how it... Um, it seeks to make culture really the ultimate authority over uh, the truth of God. So progressive theology doesn't be begin with the scripture. It really begins with culture and says, what does scripture have to say about this? And any time in progressive theology, what happens is anytime the scriptures might say something that seems um, 
antithetical to what's happening in contemporary culture, then they want to make the scriptures. They want to interpret the scriptures differently or um, create a certain amount of question or suspicion about the scriptures in this regard so that they can squeeze it and shape it and mold it into something that they can then use to basically um, make contemporary cultural behaviors acceptable. Yeah, that's called problematizing a text. Ooh, wow. Yep. That's the, the like I said, the progenitors. This you, is all kind of a game plan. You're full of words today. Uh-huh. I've read this stuff because I'm like, how are smart people being so goofed? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this is like, you could draw it on a chalkboard. It's like a play. They have all these different plays. That one's called problematizing text. So if you don't like what Paul the Apostle says about homosexuality, well, just problematize it. Yeah. Throw it into suspicion, like you said. Qu- make it make it questionable. Right. Then you have to pay attention to it. Yeah. And that's incredibly pernicious um, and easy oh, to do because, you like... You are scoring uh, big points today. Pernicious. I use that one probably more than I should. You do. Honestly. <laughs> you do like that word. I like, I like that it word. that you use it because I've never used it. And No, I'm yeah. sorry. I'm taking away no. from your good points. But it, it, that's what I dislike about it because we want, we don't, we don't like um, people, I think, particularly Christians, want to be compassionate and loving. And uh, in, they want to include people. I'm not going to say inclusive because it, it's been yeah. tainted. Um, granted, so is compassionate and loving. But, but yeah, they, they, they use those things, and then they just problematize stuff and make it to where it's like, wait, hang on. Like, we did the whole, we're going to love the sin, or we're going to hate the sin, but not the sinner. That, that's 100% true. I believe in that. But it doesn't mean that we justify the, the sinner right. in a sin. Yeah. And it's like, that's what it's turned into now. Yeah, and this young lady this morning did a great job of describing exactly what you're talking about, how uh, progressive theology and then, of course, progressive churches, um, they want to, in the interest of being empathetic and loving and compassionate and inclusive, they're saying, yes, come, come to Jesus here in this context. But as she pointed out, they're not saying your sin needs to be dealt with they're saying no your sin is not even sin it's completely acceptable god loves you in light of who you are and that's so so incompatible with the nature of truth the authority of the scriptures and the very specific things that god declares in the authority of the written revelation of scripture that um Yes, all sinners are welcome at our church, and we have them in all shapes and sizes, including the preacher. What we are consistent about is, you know, the message of Jesus, I've come to call sinners to repentance. And so, yes, come with your sin. Your sin is welcome here. You as a sinner caught in your sin are welcome here. But we're all striving to understand the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ and its power to transform. And that begins with a repentance regarding the way of life I have currently assumed and what's incompatible with the message of the scriptures I change toward it rather than twist and manufacture the scripture to approve and accept my sin.
And um, I, I wish I, uh, I, I'm actually going to ask this young lady if I can get a copy of her speech. I, seriously, I was so impressed. Mm. Um, but she quoted this one author that, and again, I can't remember the words, exact words of the quote, but she was essentially saying um, when, when we do with the gospel what progressive theology seeks to do, then the gospel actually is no longer the gospel. It's no longer about the salvation of sinners before a holy and righteous God. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so that actually brings me to the second thing that you asked me and what concerns me. So the, the first concern is about what I think I'm seeing the church in somewhat of a, either an ignorant or an intimidated stance, this sort of backing down and backing away from the real concerns of the culture in which it lives, um, which I think brings me to the second concern I have is just this enormous ignorance about an understanding of Scripture. Mm. And not only the content of the Scripture, but the nature of Scripture. So we have we have people who are largely ignorant about most any of the content of the scriptures. Um, you, you have a whole generation of people who essentially grew up um, being spooed and fed all their favorite verses, the ones they like, the ones that, you know, are easy to get, the ones that inspire and the ones that comfort and the ones that encourage. The football helmet verses. <laughs> yeah. And so um, they don't have a, a dexterity of the scripture as a whole. Uh, they don't know the hard stuff. They don't know the stuff that requires a whole lot of study and examination and deep thought. They have a really surfacey level understanding of Scripture by way of content. And what that leads to and the other expression of it, they just don't have, they don't have any understanding of the nature of Scripture as being God's words to mankind God's inspired, inerrant, and more importantly, the authoritative words of God to human beings. Um, you know, this makes sense on a secular campus of, you know, essentially atheists, but it doesn't make sense in a church faith community that largely sees, and this is what I'm hearing, the Bible's just another book. It's just one of many books it has a you know kind of a religious history and it has sort of a spiritual setting, but they don't see it as the words of God. It's just another book, and it's been informative to our you know uh, Protestant faith. I'm saying this is the the weakness. Um, it's been informative to our Protestant faith and kind of been at the center of it. But so many people fail to see the the scriptures as being a revelation from the living God to us as human beings. And so it's not, it's not optional. It's not um, inspirational in the sense of like lighthearted, just a pick me up. It is the very words of life and how we are to live our life. And it's not subject to the winds of change. It's not subject to, you know, popular or contemporary society to where it can sort of say whatever we want it to say. It's the timeless, inspired words of God, and I don't think 
too many Christians really have an understanding of that anymore. And that concerns me. Yeah. No, because, I, because it just becomes so easy to manipulate and to ignore and to, you know, step back from if it gets really uncomfortable. Well, yeah, it's just the second problem is what exasperates the first almost it, or, and makes it easier for the first to occur. If you're not <clears throat> informed or knowledgeable uh, about either the nature or the content of Scripture, well, then you can get thrown around by people who are... yeah. Who, who are manipulative and who understand things, especially if they themselves have some claim to authority, right? Right. Because people will just take professors, and it's like, look, there's a big reason why I didn't go to a college. This perhaps couldn't be incorrect, but the I, I was like, well, I'm going to have a hard time sitting there for like two hours listening to some goon talk on about something, and it's like, I don't know about that. There are good places, but might not have been good for this guy. Um but yeah, like just because somebody has authority, people will automatically just kind of go to them. And I even say this, like, um, back to your first point, it, we are kind of that frog in a pot. There's a whole bunch of frogs, and we're all kind of in that pot, and it's starting to heat up. But kind of what I've found is if you have even just one voice that says, no, that ain't the case, I'm going to hop out, more people will follow you. They just won't be the first to hop, right? Right. I've noticed that a lot. It's like I have friends and I'll, I'll disagree. And I know that the majority of the people in this group agree with what I'm saying. They don't say anything, though. But yeah. as soon as I say something, then they'll say something. Right. Um, but to disagree in the beginning, it's shaky. Because they also, they also aren't strong in why they believe what they believe, which is their second point. Right. Yeah, when you're not strong in what you believe, then what you're saying is you lack the confidence and the courage to stand up for it. Um, I mean, there's a real sense, there's an important sense to the word conviction. Mm. It's not just about, conviction It's not just dogmatic. Conviction is that I believe it down to the core of my being and I'm willing to stand for it and I'm willing to fall for it. And what we're, what I think in response to my first concern about, you know, the slow or quick progress toward persecution that's happening is um, because people don't know their Bibles, they don't know the narrative of redemption and God's plan for um, his church. Therefore, they lack confidence and conviction. Therefore, they don't make a stand, and, and consequently, the church gets run over. And um, that in many ways that ultimately comes back to a, an ignorance about what this book is really all about. And there's, you know, there's a sense of a knowledge of the scriptures are designed to give me a courage, uh, to give me courage in the face of what's whirling around me because I can stand in the knowledge of the truth of God and saying, maybe far reaching, I know how this ends, which may sound cliche, but no, that's true. I, I know how this ends and persecution is actually a part of it, but in the end is glory. And so I, I don't march to persecution with, you know, an eagerness. I just know it's coming I embrace, I, I brace myself for it, but I have a responsibility even in that persecution 
to be a witness, uh, to be an ambassador, to make a stand, even though I may be drowned out and eventually, you know, um, a host of different expressions of persecution from either being imprisoned and rested to being mocked to, to actually being killed. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm just concerned about the enormous ignorance in the church about the scriptures. That's not new. I mean, when I was a teenager going to church, I was hearing that, that the, the church of would have been the 60s and the 70s lacks a, a thorough understanding of the scriptures. Now it's just that that whole harvest is is um, just that much more of a crisis because things are getting more and more serious and Christians ill-equipped in a knowledge of the scriptures, they can't make a stand. They don't know what to say. Uh, they don't have any confidence and courage to do that. Well, I, ultimately, I think that the fact of the matter is, too, um, you see in countries, I, I don't know how much about other countries either, uh, as far as the church goes, but I do know that the places where persecution is some of the harshest, Christianity grows quickest there. Sure. And so there's something about, uh, I think that the people, the flock that remains when persecution comes, that brings in more sheep than, say, uh, like over here. And, what, and so what I mean by that is just, when persecution comes, all the people who don't really mean it are going to jump ship. Yes. And so you're starting to see some of that now. Um, but the Christians who remain, they're the ones that are willing to uh, either, you know, both live and speak in such a way that is attractive. Because here's another thing. It's like that going back to the progressive Christianity. Those churches, <clears throat> I haven't seen a whole lot of churches like that that are startups. Like, like they just started. They're normally churches that have turned progressive. People keep going to them. Yeah. But the ones that start, it's like, okay, but how are you different than like a support group? Mm. You read their website and you're just like, you can you can control F and search for the word love a hundred times. Right. Control F and search for sin, righteousness, you know, repentance, not a single one. And it's like, okay, well, there's nothing here. Like, yeah. There's no reason for somebody to come join you because you're that not calling them find to anything. Something else. Yeah, the sweetness, the sweetness and goodness of the good news, you can't taste it. You can't feel it unless it's contrasted with the reality of yeah. the ugliness and emptiness of sin. Right. And um, and so yeah, whenever persecution comes, all those people who are just doing it, just kind of following along, they they'll leave and then. Right. And then it'll build up a stronger group. And so, in a way, persecution is almost, not that it's good, but... Well, actually, it's good from a redemptive perspective. Yes. And we see that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I mean, the book of Acts is a very clear example of how the church was refined and strengthened through persecution. And we see in the early chapters of Acts, as Christians were persecuted... Um, they ended up moving to new areas and the church grew because um, persecution has a way of calling out. And when I say calling, C-U-L-L-I-N-G, it has a way of validating who's real or not. And um, it, it then basically is raising up 
the true Christians among the flock that will be devoted to faith and will be courageous about a stand for uh, their faith. And so, yes, we, we you can make a biblical case for mm-hmm. how persecution is, in fact, a good thing. It's it's a hard thing, but ultimately in God's redemptive game plan, it's a good thing because it sort of um, raises up a stronger, truer expression of what the body of Christ, the church on earth, was really intended to be. Yes, yeah, the uh, the plucking of the vine, but the yeah, what is the, the word? pruning? Pruning, yeah, the pruning of the vine. Um, no, absolutely. Um, so, <clears throat> with- I, when I was in college, I, I read this interesting story. This is a stretch because college was a few years ago. Uh. I think I remember uh, the gist of it. The story was something about um, a church in Russia that had gathered in some sort of secret place to to worship together, and suddenly. Um, a group of like uh, soldiers in uniforms uh, burst into this secret gathering, and they said, um, "Anybody who's willing to deny their faith in Jesus Christ, stand up." And so they stood up, and they said, "All right, because you're willing to deny your faith in Jesus Christ, you're free to leave." And so they were dismissed. And they, you know, ran off. And so everybody who was left, the handful of people who were unwilling to deny their faith in Jesus Christ, they thought for sure, here's what's going to happen. We're going to be killed because we've stood for the gospel and these soldiers. And so in the story that I heard, once the doors were closed and all these people had left, the soldiers said, good, we wanted to worship with true Christians. And so they ended up sitting down and, enjoying this expression of true worship because they were surrounded by people who were authentically committed to their devotion to Christ. And I think that's a a really beautiful picture of, I think, the heart of God for the church Mm. is that, I mean, he's he's not the least bit enamored with or impressed by imposters, and he knows who the imposters are. What his longing for is... It doesn't matter how small he's looking for that that handful of people who are truly devoted to the message and the authority of the gospel as salvation for sinners who come to Christ through repentance and then pursue and follow him from, from that starting point. Because that is, in fact, the church. It's those true followers of Jesus. And I'm just thinking the number of true, committed, devoted, authentic followers of Jesus is probably a much smaller circle of people than the current attendance at churches across America. And it will be persecution that will thin out the ranks. And, mm-hmm. and we'll see that in very real ways. The more intense the persecution becomes, the, the greater the the uh, consequences of standing up for Christ become, the more we'll sort of weed out those who are the pretenders. So what you're saying is that this coming Sunday, that'll be a host moment? <laughs> 
Yeah, we should try that sometime. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. Okay, so <clears throat> those are your two things that you kind of see. Um, is there anything? I know we we've kind of kind of talked about this as we discussed them, but do you have any suggestions or maybe even just things that we can try to, that we could possibly um, do? The problems themselves kind of speak to their their yeah, solution, yeah. but maybe just kind of go through both the first and the second. Um, some uh, some some steps we could take to address the address concerns. it yeah to reverse go the opposite direction or or, may, or slow it down at least. Um, two things that come to mind is one. I think we have to teach Christians the difference between morality and ethics under the the influence of God versus politics. Mm. Because that it's the thing I keep running up against is so many moral and ethical dilemmas of faith are often perceived as, well, those are politics or those are political topics, and they're not. They've been politicized. I know I've, I feel like I say this all the time. They've been politicized, but they're not inherently political ideas. Yeah. They are moral and ethical ideas, deeply spiritual at their roots. And therefore, um, we, have, we have to get the church to understand that um, avoiding those topics because we don't want to be political is, is just one of the other ways that we are intimidated into silence. Um, I think we have to help people understand that what's happening in our culture, in our society, um, is deeply spiritual at its roots. And that's where the gospel comes in, and that's where the power of God comes in. That's where the truth of God comes in. And so I think if we're going to counteract sort of this seduction that's happening to the church, um, the church has to become wiser about the nature of the things that it's encountering. It's not just... It's not just social, it's not just political, it's not just kind of popular. It is, as you, you, you make a great point about it, it's evil mm. in, its, in its nature, and our refusal to um, address it because we don't want to be political, we don't want to be unloving, or we don't want to be unaccepting, um, that... that whole seduction that whole uh, misunderstanding just leads to the church um, not being able to fulfill its intended purposes salt and light in the world so i think that's one of the ways I, the second way is um, everything from preaching to teaching to um, small group curriculum or you know life group curriculum to um, uh, any nature of opportunity we we have to we have to teach people god's word mm. and whatever superfluous or entertaining ways that we might go about inter introducing people to christian ideas again i'm all for keeping it creative and keep it engaging and interesting we we have to maybe forego some of the song and the dance to just get back to this is the word of god yeah here's what it says i want to help you understand what it says 
so that you can live your life accordingly and speak to it with confidence. Um, so, you know, maybe that's just the teacher in me. I, I'm a teacher, and what's that old phrase? If you're a hammer, everything's a nail. Um, I'm a teacher, so I, I always sort of tend toward, we got to teach, we got to teach, we got to teach them more. And it's not about sitting them in classrooms where they sit in, you know, chairs and listen to a lecturer. That's, that's, we just have to help people get the word of God in their mind and their heart so they know how to live their life in relationship to what's happening around them. Well, and I think too, I mean, I'm very passionate about that because, because, uh, that stuff didn't work anyways. The, the trying to make things, maybe it did for a short amount of time, but like where are, where are a lot of those people now? They're trying to make things entertaining to such a degree um, that more people will come. Uh, it didn't really work anyways. Yeah. And, in hindsight, and I, I don't necessarily blame people in, in the time, but it's like, if it's not going to work anyways, then I'm not going to, it doesn't matter to me. If it's all so... Uh, surface level and people are going to leave anyways or they're going to drop at the slightest hint of 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 difficulty or hard time or actually having to try other than just sitting in your chair on a Sunday morning right it's like well fine it's like even the class thing it's like yeah I understand I get that we don't want people to necessarily feel like they're like in a classroom but it's like well, we do that for math we're not going to do it for how we're going to live our life yeah. who cares Good it's point. like I'm gonna that's not, it's like I'm gonna uh, the likelihood of me going and learning theology and what I believe is so much higher than like sitting there and or sending my kid to go learn biology. I don't care. Is in comparison? Are you kidding me? We have no problem doing it with school, but when it comes to God, no, no, no. Yeah, we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that to people. It's like, yeah. well, fine. Well, that <laughs> that tells us a little bit about who's willing sure. to do what. Yeah, that's a great point. And if you're not willing to do that, then you're probably not going to be willing to be persecuted. Yeah. That, another great point by Wyatt Marchand. That's what I'm here for. Now I'm all fired up. <laughs> you are fired up. <laughs> oh, I just get rolling. <laughs>